Hello, and welcome to The Conversation Weekly. This week, Ukraine. We talk to three experts about the origins of Ukrainian nationalism and how Ukrainian national identity is changing. To be Ukrainian used to mean to be Ukrainian by descent. Increasingly, uh, they change toward more and more people identifying as Ukrainian. As the conflict escalated, so did support for the Ukrainian state. And we hear about a rare archive of Ukrainian dissident literature from the Soviet era and why it's now in danger. Putin is afraid of the expression of the civic vitality that is embodied in the Ukrainian people and that is embodied in this archive. Should they find it, it would be the first thing that they would destroy. I'm Gemma Wett. And I'm Dan Marino. And for the first time ever, Gemma and I are recording this in the same room. And today we're in Boston, Massachusetts. You're listening to The Conversation Weekly, the world explained by experts. Russia has invaded Ukraine, advancing... Military bases, airports and aircraft have been targeted... Russia has invaded Ukraine. Most of Ukraine was fast asleep. They were woken up by loud explosions. Since Russia invaded Ukraine on the 24th of February, the country's blue and yellow flag has become a symbol of solidarity around the world. It's being displayed on public buildings, held up in street protests, and used widely across social media. As we record this episode, with the war in its third week, at least 590 civilians are dead, thousands more are under siege from Russian bombardment in cities across Ukraine, and millions have fled to neighboring countries to escape the fighting. In the face of Russian aggression, I think the world expected the Ukrainian people to unite in support of their country. But the strength of that unity has impressed the world. History is central to understanding the war in Ukraine. And so in this episode, we're exploring the history of Ukrainian national identity. We find out how it emerged and how it's been changing, both since 2014 when Russia annexed Crimea and the war in eastern Ukraine began, and now with Russia's invasion. To do that, I've been talking with three experts on Ukraine's history, politics and identity. The first person I called up is based in Kyiv. I'm Volodymyr Kulik. I'm a head research fellow at the Institute of Political and Ethnic Studies, National Academy of Sciences of Ukraine in Kyiv. And I'm currently in Kyiv uh, in my apartment. Uh, Shelin is like 15, 20 miles away. I, I hear uh, some regularly, but I'm told that it is our anti-aircraft Shelin rather than Russian Shelin on us. So, so far, so good. Well, thank you for speaking to us. I know it's a scary situation right now. You are a scholar of Ukrainian national identity and language and politics and, and, and identity more generally in the country. So first off, let me ask you, how would you characterize what it means to be a Ukrainian, what Ukrainian national identity is? It is changing. Uh, to be Ukrainian used to mean to be Ukrainian by descent, to be of Ukrainian origin or in the Soviet official parlance to be of Ukrainian nationality. And nationality was primarily understood in ethnic hereditary terms. Increasingly, uh, they change toward more and more people identifying as Ukrainian. That means that more and more people who used to be Russian or who used to be other um, ethnicities start identifying as Ukrainians. And the meaning of this category is changing. This category used to mean uh, descent, and now it, it increasingly means citizenship. Even though if people are asked how you define your nationality, um, most people still say by nationality of my parents. 
Ukrainian national identity is characterized by a uh, peculiar combination of inclusive membership and Ukrainian ethnocultural content, including uh, Ukrainian language, Ukrainian uh, historical narrative, uh, Ukrainian folk culture, and so on. So everybody is welcome, provided they accept that the rules of this belonging are defined ethnoculturally, but not very strictly. The backside of that is the kind of discursive erasure of Russians in Ukraine. Uh, mm. If you listen to public discourse, there are no Russians in Ukraine. All Russians are in Russia. And it's not only about erasure from above by official discourse, but it's also from erasure from below uh, when you read uh, social media. People are not calling themselves Russians. Even before this full-scale invasion of the last two weeks, Russians somehow disappeared. What it means to be Ukrainian has always been a complex question, tied up with issues of nationality, ethnicity, language and politics. We'll be hearing more from Vladimir about his research on how it's changing a bit later in the episode. But first, some history. And to help us with that, I called up Dominique Arel. I'm uh, Dominique Arel. I hold the chair of Ukrainian studies at the University of Ottawa, but I'm actually based right now in Montreal, Canada. Okay, could you tell us when does a Ukrainian national identity first start to emerge? It started to emerge when national identities in the plural form started to emerge in Europe. So we're talking largely the second part of the 19th century. And in Ukraine, the ID started to germinate in the part of Ukraine uh, that was under Moscow in the Russian Empire. So it crystallized around the the famous figure of Taras Shevchenko, who is kind of the literary figure par excellence in in Ukraine and considered almost the father of the Ukrainian nation. But Ukrainian nationalism as really a social movement really took root in the western part of the country, particularly in the province of Galicia, which then was not part of the Russian Empire but of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And in Austria, in 1867, the authorities passed a new constitution and recognized the rights of what they called nationalities, let's say ethnic minorities. And you had a number of them, including the Ruthenians. That's how they were called in the 19th century, going back to the medieval state of Rus. They started to call themselves Ukrainian by the turn of the century. And the key here is that in Galicia, the Austrian authorities allowed the, let's call them the Ukrainian, to have their own schools. So you had the standardized language for the first time taught in schools. And they also had a degree of political autonomy. Well, in the sense of that they could organize politically and be represented in in the local and even the national parliament. So that is, you could say, the birth of really the Ukrainian nationalism as a social movement, as a mass movement that really crystallized by the First World War. So it was far more developed in Western Ukraine than in Eastern Ukraine, because in the Russian Empire, Ukrainian nationalism was repressed, and even the Ukrainian language was banned. They couldn't teach it in schools. What are the central components of this national narrative that started to form in the 19th century? Well, nationalism is based on a very simple idea. If you claim that you are forming a distinct nation, and in Europe, it was basically based on the notion that uh, your people spoke a different language. So the distinctiveness of language 
made the distinctiveness of nations. So you make the claim of distinctiveness vis-a-vis other groups. So for Ukrainian nationalism, the claim was that we're different from Russians, we're different from Poles, and therefore, because we are different, we have the right to rule ourselves. It's self-rule, it's self-determination. That's nationalism 101. Are there ways that Russian nationalism and Ukrainian nationalism overlap? I wouldn't say overlap, but competed. So in Russia, you had this imperial notion that the core identity of the state was Russian in a large sense of the term. That is, Russian, along with Ukrainians, all kind of form this tripartite um, Russian nation. So this was obviously in complete opposition to the notion that Ukrainians are distinct from Russians. Here the claim is that, no, Ukrainians are sharing a common identity and a common history with Russians, and therefore they should be united. And to this day, I mean, when Putin is talking about this Russian world, he even said literally Ukrainians and and Russians form a single people. Well, that goes back to the, the Russian Empire. Um, so the rulers of the time, so in Moscow, saw Ukrainian nationalism, these demands that were beginning to emerge in terms of self-determination, as basically a threat to the integrity of the empire. They saw Ukrainian nationalism as a Western invention. The Austrians basically fabricated the Ukrainian nationality, which is artificial, again, from the point of view of Moscow, in as much as it's claimed to be separate from Russia. So it seeks to divide, to weaken the Russian Empire. That idea, very powerful, very resilient in Russian society and in Russian government, has been around, what, 150 years. And now it's being expressed in military terms by Putin. But these are the roots. And as part of that competition, Kiev, Kiev in, in Russian has a kind of central role to play. Tell us a bit about that. The Ukrainian national narrative that was expounded most powerfully by a historian named Mikhailo Hrushevsky. You could say he's one of the nation builders of Ukrainians. Um, And he was active at the time of the First World War in the 1920s. Uh, His real contribution was basically to trace the origins of the Ukrainian nation all the way back to um, the medieval state of Kiev and Rus, claiming that the Russians had nothing to do with that state, that Moscow was created like two centuries later and a completely different lineage. That's the claim in the Ukrainian national narrative, whereas in the Russian national narrative, the claim is that Russian identity originates in Kiev and Rus. So you've got basically two narratives competing with the same place of origin, if you wish. When the Russian Empire collapsed in 1917 towards the end of the First World War, Ukraine declared independence. But this fledgling new state did not last long, thanks to a bloody war and a takeover by the Bolsheviks. So they couldn't hold their independence, but the claim was made. That is the the seminal change So in the Ukrainian national narrative, For the first time, Ukraine becomes independent and then loses it, both in the West to Poland, which was reconstituted after World War I, and to the East, so Kiev and eastward, to what eventually became 
the Soviet Union. In the early years of the Soviet Union under Vladimir Lenin, Dominique says that nationalism wasn't seen as a threat. The Soviet Union was formally built upon the principle of nationality. They created a union of Soviet socialist republics. That was the meaning of USSR. So the key point here is that for the first time, Ukraine was recognized as an actual government with administrative boundaries, which at that time did not include Crimea and did not include Western Ukraine. You now had Ukrainian taught in school. And you had all like the um, institutions, the, the symbols of state power. So the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic had its own parliament, had its own academy of sciences, its own borders, etc. All the trappings of sovereignty. And so there was this original kind of incorporation of nationalisms. And, and then what happened? What happened in the late 20s, early 30s, is... That's the Soviet Union, which was now under the hands of a dictator, Stalin, decided to go all in for collectivization, which was the abolition of private property in uh, rural areas. Now, Ukraine was the breadbasket of the Russian Empire with the, the greatest agricultural potential and still had this huge economic importance in the 1920s. So collectivization was resisted, particularly in Ukraine. And Stalin interpreted the resistance, and there was even resistance within the Communist Party of Ukraine, felt that th this would lead to a tragedy, um, as nationalism. So here, nationalism, not defined in just simple terms that the Ukrainians are distinct and ought to have you know, their sovereignty, but as something anti-Soviet, something evil. Um, so the Ukrainians here are seeking to separate from the Soviet Union. And that led to massive repression. Um, and basically the entire political and, and cultural elite were arrested. And in the early 1930s, you had all these show trials. So massive repression. And that set the stage for the terrible famine, the Holodomor, that ravaged um, the Ukrainian countryside in 32-33, when we have now very serious demographic estimates putting the, the death toll at 4 million. And then came World War II. In August 1939, just a few months before war broke out, Nazi Germany signed a non-aggression pact with the Soviet Union. The pact of non-aggression divided Poland. So territories of Poland now were annexed by the Soviet Union, and that included Western Ukraine. So the Soviet Union incorporated these areas with great brutality. You had deportations, hundreds of thousands of people, and of course, all political parties, free media, etc. Everything was banned because it was totalitarianism. And then in 1941, Nazi Germany declares war on the Soviet Union, invades, and the first territory that it invades are the Western territories of the Soviet Union, including Western Ukraine. Why is it important? Throughout the war and for many years after the war, these territories in Western Ukraine that had never been part of the Russian Empire or the Soviet Union were the site of the largest insurgency in all of Europe by Ukrainian nationalists. They actually call themselves literally the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists. 
Now, in the Soviet and now the Russian view, these nationalists were fascists, were Nazis, because they collaborated with Nazi Germany. That is the link between World War II, Ukrainian nationalism, and what we see now, that those Ukrainian nationalists who rebelled against Soviet power on a territory that had never been part of Imperial Russia or the Soviet Union. Those are identified with fascism. And in the current narrative, Ukrainian nationalism is equated with fascism. Now, it's worth saying that Ukraine has a small number of neo-Nazi sympathizers. And the integration of the far-right Azov Regiment into Ukraine's armed forces in late 2014 has raised concerns. And it feeds into Putin's stated reasons for attacking Ukraine. What he says is to denazify the country. In the decades following World War II, Ukrainian nationalism and language continued to be repressed in the Soviet Union. But by the 1980s, the glasnost policy of the final Soviet leader, Mikhail Gorbachev, allowed for more free speech and the existence of Ukrainian cultural and political organisations. In 1991, as the Soviet Union collapsed, Ukraine became an independent country. Anyone then residing on the territory had the right of citizenship. So citizenship was defined territorially or in, in civic terms. Mm. I know you've looked in your research at this period between 1991 and, and kind of up to today, I guess. Um, what changed in that period? So what we have observed is Ukraine becoming gradually more Ukrainian. So what does it mean? At the time of independence, roughly speaking, you had a little less than three-fourths of the population that declared themselves Ukrainian on the census. Ukrainian in ethnic terms, but a sizable, I think it was 22%, declaring themselves Russians. You basically had two major groups. You had the Crimean Tatars, also in Crimea, but it was three-fourths Ukrainian, roughly speaking, a little less than one-fourth Russian. And by the time we get to the next census, which was in 2001, the number of Ukrainians increase in number of Russians going down to 17%. So what is going on here? Well, a lot of them left. So you had movements of population, let's say from Eastern Ukraine to Russia. But also you had a lot that just redefined their identity. So they didn't leave, but they started to identify more and more as Ukrainian. The second trend is that in terms of electoral dynamics, you had basically two large constituencies that disagreed on the overall orientation of the state. So you had like a pro-Western constituency that tended to be from Kiev to, to the Western part and an Eastern constituency, like east of Kiev, particularly south and east, like Donbass, that in election time would vote for the candidates or parties that were understood to be more oriented towards Russia. So for, I would say, almost 25 years, you still had largely this divide. And that was reflected in election time. And governments would swing back and forth between being a little more pro-West, a little more pro-East. You had several alternatives of governments. But then Maidan changed everything. Thank <laughs> you. 
Hundreds of thousands of anti-government protesters packed the streets in and around Kiev's independent square. The Euromaidan protests of 2013 and 14 were named after the independent square in central Kiev, the Maidan. As Dominique says, the Maidan changed everything. And to understand a bit more about that, I called up an expert who's been researching this question ever since. I'm Dr. Olga Onuch, and I am a senior lecturer at the University of Manchester in politics. I am also the principal investigator of two large projects, Mobilize and IBIF. Both specialize in uh, political behavior, migration, protest, and identity in conflict in Ukraine. I asked Olga to explain what happened at the Euromaidan protests. 2013-14 now seems like a lifetime ago. What we experienced starting November 2013 was a moment of mass mobilization where a cross-cleavage coalition of ordinary Ukrainians rose up against President Yanukovych, who failed to continue pro-EU policies and signing of the EU association agreements that he promised in an election a few years earlier. What started out as a mass mobilization favoring closer ties with the EU quickly turned into an all-countrywide mobilization against Yanukovych's regime, specifically due to the fact that uh, he was sending um, special uh, militias called Berkut to beat up journalists, ordinary citizens, students, and activists, not only in Kiev, in the city center, but also across squares and town centers all across Ukraine. It turned extremely violent. The regime decided to employ the use of snipers against ordinary citizens in the capital, Kiev. And, you know, looking back at this now, I remember that night when citizens were leaving their homes in Kiev city center, rushing to help people being shot. The monastery in Kiev was ringing its bells for the first time in years to alert the citizens of Kiev to rise up. I remember that night and I remember thinking, this is the worst it can get. But of course, we know what happened since then. We know that first the president fled under the cover of night. Then there were little green men that popped up in Crimea. And we saw the annexation of Crimea immediately after. And then we saw little green men in Luhansk and Donetsk oblasts. We saw a variety of armed forces take shape. And then we noted that Russian military and army were not only moving hardware across the border, but also personnel. And in the last eight years, what started out as civil disobedience, a peaceful protest amongst Ukrainians of, frankly, all political stripes, as our survey data of the protesters showed, turned into an eight-year-long conflict and now, I think, a tragedy beyond words. Olga and her colleagues managed to secure funding in the first days of the mobilisation to start surveying the protesters to find out who they were and why they'd come out onto the streets. I remember when we were listening to our interviewees and getting the first data and we saw that there were large numbers of uh, Russian speakers. We saw that there were people from parts of the country coming to Kiev uh, to protest and they weren't only from central and western parts of the country, as so many would have expected. We saw 
not insignificant groups of people coming from the east of the country, meaning that they took buses, trains, and cars or mashrutkas to Kiev and decided to engage. We also saw that there were a not negligible number of protesters that did not vote for the opposition parties. So we saw that there were people who reported having voted for Yanukovych, uh, but they, especially after they saw the violence of the militias, they felt that they needed to defend ordinary citizens of Ukraine. And they used the language of civic duty. And so it was very clear that you had this coalition of different political groups, of different religious, ethnic, linguistic backgrounds, and they weren't talking about protecting the Ukrainian nation or protecting the Ukrainian language. They were talking about protecting the Ukrainian state. And they were talking repeatedly about their civic duty and that any citizen that has even an ounce of dignity, that it's this civic duty and dignity that was bringing them to the protest site. Olga was at Harvard's Ukraine Institute at the time, and along with her colleagues, she got funding to continue surveying Ukrainians. In the years since, working with a range of different researchers, including Vladimir Kulik, they completed 11 surveys. These include panel surveys where interviewers go back to talk to the same people over time to see how their views and attitudes shift. First and foremost, we found that civic identity or state attachment was extremely strong amongst Ukrainians across linguistic groups and across regions. There was variation to this, but we saw that it was strong and increasing over time. So as the conflict escalated, so did support for the Ukrainian state. We realized that when you ask different types of questions, um, you get a different response. So the language someone speaks in their home versus the language someone speaks at work versus the language they choose to do the survey in can be different, right? So immediately we saw that when it came to language practice and embeddedness, these were not neatly uh, divided groups. We saw the same thing for so-called ethnicity or nationality measures, that when we asked people, which group do you belong to, enforcing them in a choice, most would choose Ukraine, telling us that they were, again, priming on this civic state identity. But when we asked them, which group do you belong to on a scale separately, they could say that they equally belong to these two different groups or three different groups, because it wasn't only Ukrainian Russian, it was also other ethnolinguistic groups in the country. And that none of these factors seem to align neatly. Volodymyr Kulik has also been looking at these questions in Ukraine since 2014. He's got a term for what he's observed, de-Russification. The main uh, two features of this change are, on the one hand, the uh, stronger attachment to Ukraine as one's homeland. So this civic identification has become much stronger. On the other hand, the shift from Russian to Ukrainian as one's nationality, as one's native language, and to some extent as one's everyday language. That is uh, what I provocatively call derasification. And how has this changed people's politics and their political identity as well? Actually, it is related. So those identifying as Ukrainians, and especially those uh, identifying with Ukrainian as their native language, they are more uh, strongly nationalist, they are more strongly pro-Western, they are more strongly uh, even liberal in, in terms of uh, reforms, yeah, d- domestic politics. Uh, 
And increasingly, Ukrainian identification, especially Ukrainian native language identification, has uh, become the strongest predictor of political attitudes. In her surveys, Olga has also been tracking how Ukrainians' political views have been changing. Political views towards Russia, towards joining the EU, and towards NATO. We saw incremental change in 2014 in policy shifts. We saw a fairly large jump when it came to supporting EU accession, but we saw only about a 4 to 6% jump when it came to supporting NATO. But what we started finding out with our um, second two projects that we were conducting, both Mobilize and IBIF, also both based at the University of Manchester, and using data in combination from 2014 and then later 2019, 2020, 2021, we found all of a sudden that after Zelensky gets elected, we see a huge jump in a lot of these political dispositions. So we saw even a larger jump when it came to support for EU accession. We saw over time from 2019 to 2021, people having more positive views of how the government is helping and managing the conflict in Donbass, in the Donetsk and Luhansk uh, oblast. And most notably, there was a direct correlation of having voted for Zelensky or his uh, political party, Sluha Narodu, to moving from not having supported NATO membership to having supported NATO membership. In fact, if you voted for Zelensky in 2019 or his party, you were 18% more likely to have switched if you held a position that you were not previously supporting NATO membership for Ukraine. So we were calling this the Zelensky effect. We also saw this in generational cohorts. The youth that became politicized and came to political maturation in the 2019 elections, they were also more likely to become Euro-Atlanticist in their visions for Ukraine. And of course, civic identity only further strengthened. And there was no specific delineation between linguistic groups or regional groups. We saw civic identity and attachment grow across all regions, across all linguistic groups, even further. To Olga, the growing attachment to a Ukrainian civic identity is vital to understanding what might happen next in the war. Not only did the Russians miscalculate that ethnicity and identity, linguistic practice, regional um, residency was going to be so important in allowing them to win, actually, this uh, invasion. But sadly, our Western governments also miscalculated that Ukrainians are so strongly bounded by their civic as opposed to ethnic or linguistic or regional identities. And this is why they perhaps did not also provide as much um, military aid in the weeks leading up to the Russian invasion, because they just assumed that that lethal aid would end up in the hands of Russians. But Ukrainians, uh, ordinary uh, military and everyone proved otherwise. Sadly, those who were reading our studies could have understood this. Um, And I believe my colleagues are working with people in State Department. We're reaching out here to politicians in the UK, suggesting that because of this, this is likely to be an extremely long conflict. Ukrainians, um, their resoluteness is connected to this very long-term pattern of civic identity. So what's happening now? 
I asked Vladimir Kulik in Kyiv what struck him, since Russia's invasion, about how Ukrainians are thinking about themselves, their country and their nationality. I would indicate two uh, main changes. First, uh, much stronger unity of Ukrainians. Yeah, so everybody is Ukrainian. Russians are invading. Uh, Russians are killing us. So it's us versus them. But we are united in that. And related to this, much stronger anti-Russian sentiment. Until recently, this sentiment was rather widespread, but it was kind of implied. People were ashamed of expressing it. It's all gone. The majority of people, Russians, are just that, enemies. They believe that um, Ukrainians should be supported and Russians should be punished. Of course, it is very problematic to, to have surveys. I've only read about uh, several surveys being conducted since the, the full-scale in- invasion. But one is indicative. Uh, Ukrainians were asked, who do they think is guilty of this invasion? Is it its only Russian state or equally Russian state and Russian people? And while 55% say it's Russian state, as many as 38% said it's both Russian state and Russian people. So this anti-Russian sentiment is very strong, and I believe it, it, it is there to stay for decades to come. What does it mean for Russian-speaking Ukrainians then? Um, we don't know yet. It, it will be revealed after the war ends. But uh, there is this danger. Right now, nobody questions uh, the right of, of people to speak Russian. When I, when, I, when I said on lines for food and medicine, lots of people around me in Kiev speak Russian. And I read my news feed with, with reports from the front line, lots of people write in Russian. So on the one hand, Russian is a very widespread and very legitimate and in a way noble language because so many noble people speak it. On the other hand, for many people, uh, the desire to get rid of anything Russian is so enormous that it would be a miracle if this desire will not be extended to Russian language. So the the ceasefire after the war, I believe there will be a clash between a strong desire to Ukrainize Ukraine even further, and on the other hand, between the desire to kind of assert Russian as a legitimate language of Ukraine. Keep in mind that the Russians are advancing from the east. So the main people who are suffering in Kharkiv, in Mariupol, in, in, in Sumer are, are most Russian speakers. So the Russian speakers are right now suffering much more than Ukrainian speakers. And that is understood. But I believe that will not be the reason not to insist on the predominant use of Ukrainian in Ukraine after the war. But I believe it will not be a divide in, in Ukraine. It will, be, it will be productive controversy, which will lead to some kind of a compromise. Okay. People in towns that have been occupied by Russian forces already, such as Kyrgyzstan and and, and Melitopol, they've taken to the streets to demonstrate against Russian forces and the videos of of people bravely waving Ukrainian flags. What does that tell you about what the war is doing to Ukrainian civic identity and um, what might happen should that become kind of prolonged, that that Russian occupation in those places? What people are demonstrating there their resolve, their determination uh, to remain Ukrainian, even at the gunpoint, yeah? And their hatred of Russian as those who, who are making that impossible, who are, who are invading their country, who are, who are endangering their lives. And probably you know about this trend of it, which started on the first day of war when the Russian warship attacked uh, Ukrainian defenders on the, on the Serpent Island. And he was told, um, um, excuse my, my profanity, uh, go fuck yourself. Yeah? Th- these words, it's precisely in its profane form, in, in uncivil forms, yeah, were appropriated by most educated people. And so what, what these people are saying uh, in the streets of Melitopol and Erson are exactly that. 
addressed to Russia, addressed to Putin personally. So the hatred is 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 there. It's very raw. It's very it's very visible. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time. Please yeah, thank you. Um, please take care of yourself. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. That was Dominic Aral, Olga Unik, and Vladimir Kulik. Now, our next story brings a personal perspective to some of the history we've just been hearing about. As Dominic Aral explained, Ukrainian nationalism and language came to be repressed during the Stalinist part of the Soviet era. It was dangerous to publish Ukrainian political and cultural texts, particularly those critical of the Soviet leadership. Despite the censorship, some of this dissident literature was smuggled out of Ukraine, and one man in the U.S. began collecting a lot of it. I spoke to his daughter to find out about the history of this remarkable archive and how the Russian invasion is putting it in danger. My name is Katya Pilishenko-Kolcha. I'm a professor at Wesleyan University and currently director of Wesleyan's Alt-Britain Center for the Study of Public Life. I'm also the daughter of Volodymyr Pilishenko. My father's side of the family immigrated from Ukraine shortly after the Second World War. His family was forced to flee Ukraine during the Second World War. He was a young boy, and um, they fled through Germany, and he spent quite a bit of time, a few years, in DP camps, displaced persons camps in Germany, in Aschaffenburg. And that is where he developed his early, early, he was still... Yeah, a, a little boy, but early appreciation of Ukrainian literature, poetry, and arts. It was my grandfather who, he opened a library in on the border between Ukraine and Poland. And also it's largely due to him that he instilled my father with this great appreciation for Ukrainian books and history. The family eventually came to Rochester, New York, when the war ended And he eventually became a professor at the State University of New York at Brockport and a very active member of the Ukrainian community. Your father had this um, tendency to think about literature and and Ukrainian history through literature and and books and materials. And then he also started collecting some of that. Tell us about what, what he started to collect and when that happened. He probably started collecting seriously in the early 70s. So... For a good amount of time, my family wasn't allowed to return to the Soviet Union. But because he was a professor, uh, he was given permission to return to the Soviet Union, to Ukraine, which he did uh, the first time, I believe, was 1972. It was a very guarded trip. He was accompanied at all times. But nevertheless, he met with interesting people. And during that trip and subsequent trips, he would sometimes be given writings, handwritten work, notes um, scribbled on whatever was available by poets, dissidents, uh, writers and thinkers in Ukraine. He realized the value of the words and the histories and the memories that were being censored and oppressed. At that time, I I traveled with him as well. I was still young. But at that time, I remember vividly my parents saying, just don't speak Ukrainian on the streets. Make sure nobody hears you speaking Ukrainian. So there was an active repression and um, 
punishment for expressing oneself as as having Ukrainian identity. Um, he began at that point collecting writings, not only that he brought out of the Soviet Union, but that were published outside the Soviet Union. And he started his search for the materials that would be written, that would be documenting Ukrainian history and experiences and cultural identity, including poetry, etc., um, that would have been burned or censored or banned in the territory of the Soviet Union. So this included um, books that were published in the displaced persons camps, um, books that were published in Austria, Australia, United States, Argentina, Canada by um, refugees, documenting what happened during the years that they were persecuted and during the war years. So these books were impossible to obtain in the Soviet Union, in Ukraine. And when Ukraine declared independence, none of this material was included in the in the curriculum, in the scholarship of Ukraine. So he'd spent the 70s, 80s collecting this material. Was he keeping it in your house? What was he doing with it? Yeah, he was keeping all of it in our house. So not under the best conditions, but he had it together. And he was building this, accumulating this collection of books slowly. He um, and, and it wasn't just his own work. The Ukrainian diaspora community in the United States and around the world was very self-consciously preserving books and opening schools, teaching a history that they knew wasn't being maintained in Ukraine in the hope that someday it would be. So in the Ukrainian Credit Union of Rochester in the basement was a library, a community library where many of these books were housed. And my father became the librarian. He was very active in the credit union movement. And when somebody would die, an elder in a family, the family would know to bring whatever books they have to my father and he would go through them. And if there was something that he knew would be of value or that was was rare, he would set it aside and it became part of this archive that he hoped someday would return to Ukraine. And of course, this was before Ukrainian independence, and nobody knew whether that would ever come. And then it did come in 1991. So what happened then to this material? We didn't quite exactly know what would happen with my father's archive until 2017. The mayor of the city of Dnipro, Dnipro is a city on the eastern side of Ukraine, fairly close to the Donbass um, zone of conflict. Um, the mayor, Boris Albertovich Filatov, who is very conscious of, of Ukrainian independence and identity, made it his mission to, to revive a sense of what, what had been forgotten about Ukraine. And he was in Rochester because it's a comparable size city to Dnipro. My father was in a room with him at the same time, being a community activist, and, and just said, wouldn't you like to see somebody's house? Let me just show you what a house looks like. And so the mayor said, yes, sure. And they snuck off and visited my father's house. And that's when the mayor saw the collection, which was, you know, out and open on the bookshelves and packed stacks and stacks of books, it turns out numbering over 15,000. So to give you a sense of scale, and, and the mayor at that moment said, we will build you a library. When he saw what was in that collection, he said, we don't have this in Ukraine. We still don't have these. And sure enough, in 2018, Mayor Filatov invited my father. I accompanied him with my son to Dnipro to 
find a location and the location that was chosen is right in the city center in the central library and they built a wing to house these materials specifically. And so when did the last package of books get sent? What happened in 2021 at the beginning of the year in February is my father contracted COVID-19 and he um, died February 8th. Uh, The library hadn't been completed, so I went to work. I went to Rochester and, and resumed the work and we made a plan for the group of scholars from Dnipro to come and help catalog the remaining books, um, which was kind of the second half of the collection. And we completed that in September of 2021. And the books went into a container ship and sat on a ship for months. Um, And we waited and we waited. And February 8th of 2022, I got a note in my Facebook with photographs announcing that the books had finally arrived. The container had finally made it to Dnipro and they showed pictures of all those hundreds of books, which included my father's handwritten diaries from over 50 years. Wow. So I guess at this point, February the 8th, just a couple of weeks ago now, and the world has changed so much since then, you had no idea what would happen. Um, Do you know what the situation is right now? Yeah. So so the timing is just so uh, extraordinary. February 8th, we had no idea that that Russia would launch this full-scale invasion. I know that the books are still in boxes and they're currently in a basement. We only wish that they had been stuck on container ships for a few more weeks, just two more weeks. It would have made the world of difference. But they're all in the basement in the Central City Library, as far as I'm aware. I know that's in the central part of the city of Dnipro. Dnipro is not far from Zaporizhia. You might have heard in the news uh, Russia took control of the Zaporizhia uh, nuclear power plant and Dnipro is is not far away. So we're um, extremely concerned. And of course, we worry more than anything about the people of Dnipro. They've been heroes throughout this eight-year war. They've really been on the front line of defending Ukraine as a whole. And we can only hope for the best. And this idea of language and the Ukrainian language, is there a real fear that that because they're written in Ukrainian and they tell that history that they might be kind of a particular target to anyone who finds them. Oh, that's, yeah, that's absolutely for certain. Um, In the essay that Putin published over the summer, in the speech he gave just a couple of weeks ago, Putin has made it clear that he thinks Ukrainians don't exist, that they're really Russians, that they're a subset of Russians, that there is no independent or unique Ukrainian identity All of the materials in the library counter that exactly. Putin is is not afraid of NATO. If he were afraid of NATO, he wouldn't be bombing nuclear plants. Putin is afraid of the expression of the civic vitality that is embodied in the Ukrainian people and that is embodied in this archive. Should they find it, it would be the first thing that they would destroy. And um, despite attempting to do exactly that over hundreds of years, they've not succeeded. So there's that glimmer of optimism that I have, but in the short term, um, that's what we're facing. 
Well, thank you, Katja. I appreciate yeah. you telling us the story. Thank you. In the days since we recorded this interview with Katya, the Russian army has begun shelling the city of Dnipro. You can read a story that Katya Kolchio wrote about the Ukrainian-American community and her father's archive on The Conversation. We'll put a link in the show notes to that. Elsewhere on The Conversation this week, we've been marking the two-year anniversary of the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. Here's Moina Spooner with a roundup of some of our coverage from experts in Africa. Hi, my name is Moina Spooner. I'm the assistant editor for The Conversation based in Nairobi. This week, we marked two years since the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 to be a public health emergency of international concern. This was just two months after the new coronavirus was first identified in China. Over the next two years, COVID-19 would go on to infect nearly half a billion people, killing over six million around the world. Reflecting on the COVID response, we asked three African health experts to share their biggest lessons. In the article, the themes that recur are about breaking down boundaries, sharing, communicating, and valuing people equally. Another recommended article is a piece that looks at how COVID impacted on other diseases. Francisca Mutapi unpacks the pandemic's effects on neglected tropical diseases. These 20 infectious diseases affect over 1.7 billion people. Mutapi explains how the pandemic interrupted efforts to control them by causing health budgets to be reprioritized and aid to be cut. I hope you enjoy the reads. Bye for now. That's it for this week. Thanks to all the academics who've spoken to us for this episode. And thanks to the conversation editors, Jonathan Est, Hannah Hogue and Amy Lieberman. And thanks to Alice Mason for our social media promotion. You can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, Instagram at theconversation.com, or email us, podcast at theconversation.com. You can also sign up for our free daily email. Just click the link in the show notes. If you're enjoying The Conversation Weekly, please leave a rating or review where podcast apps allow you to. The Conversation Weekly is co-produced by Mend Marawani and me, Gemma Ware, with sound design by Eloise Stevens. Our theme music is by Nita Sal. I'm Dan Marino. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for listening.